everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Gospel of John. My name is Jonathan Chan. I'm so glad that you can join me today as we continue our journey through the Gospel of John. And today we will be embarking on John chapter nine, entitled "Logical." But before we begin, let's just start off with a video clip because customarily that's what we do. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the clip, and we'll be right back. You seem to have upset the delicate internal balance of my housekeeper. We're very sorry, sir. It won't happen again. It's our sister, sir, Lucy. The weeping girl. Yes, sir. She's upset. Hence the weeping. It's nothing. We can handle it. Oh, I can see that. She thinks she's found a magical land in the upstairs wardrobe. What did you say? Um, the wardrobe upstairs. Lucy thinks she's found a forest inside. She won't stop going on about it. What was it like? Like talking to a lunatic. No, 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 not her. The forest. You're not saying you believe her. You don't. But of course not. I mean, logically, it's impossible. What do they teach in schools these days? Edmund said they were only pretending. And he's usually the more truthful one, is he? No. This would be the first time. Well, if she's not mad and she's not lying, then logically, we must assume she's telling the truth. You're saying that we should just believe her. She's your sister, isn't she? You're a family. You might just try acting like one. It's interesting in this movie clip that the reason why Lucy's older siblings, who you just saw, did not believe her story because her claims were seen as illogical. Now, some of you were wondering, okay, you didn't show me that clip, but due to copyright and due to uh, just trying to get to the point, due to copyright. I only show you the interaction between the professor and her older siblings. But for those of you who have seen the movie or want to know where this scene came from, it's called The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. By, uh, the most recent movie, not the old um, cheesy one. Okay, anyways, let's get back to the point here. Lucy's older siblings uh, thought Lucy's uh, story, her testimony, was illogical because it's just didn't make sense. <clears throat> but yet, the professor, rather than quickly writing off Lucy's claims, he approached it with interest and curiosity, almost giving us the impression that even though he's an academic and well-learned, because he looks like one, he has a pipe, he still has space to entertain things that he cannot explain logically. I sometimes see myself in Lucy's older siblings as well. It may not be talking with children, though I do catch myself sometimes being tempted to write off their stories as just mere fiction or imagination. Because, hey, they're kids, right? They, they, they don't know what they're talking about. But then I also catch myself talking to people and catching myself tempted in writing off people when they provide opinions or suggestions that are supposedly in my realm 
of expertise or how I think or believe that I'm an expert in, such as theology, Bible reading, business management, etc. right? That I find myself more eager to interject on their opinions and correct them as opposed to intentionally listening to them and respect their opinions and ideas because in my mind, I think that I should know better. However, I should provide them with space. I should provide some interest or authentic, genuine interest in their opinions and suggestions. Today, we see the Pharisees behaving like Lucy's older siblings. They are convinced that they know everything about the law. The expected Messiah, they should know who the Messiah is. They even have a definition for him. And how sin and suffering works. They should know that. They believe that they know how sin and suffering works. Yet Jesus says it is because they are convinced that they know because they made no room to explore and take interest on different views and things that may go beyond their logical mind or even contrary to their logical mind, Jesus calls them blind. So the question today is, are we blind? And how do we know? Let's begin. John chapter 9, starting with verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but so that the works of God might be displayed to him, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming, when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Immediately, John starts with the logic that is in question here. The disciples are asking, and probably we're asking sometimes, is, is it true that suffering is a result from sin? Is it true that suffering is a result from sin? I.e., bad things happen to bad people and vice versa. Good things happen to good people. Right away, you and I would probably, probably, disagree with this because that's completely untrue. We know that bad things can happen to very good people and good things can happen to complete shitheads. But in Jesus's day, that was a prevalent logic that Judaism believed. If you encounter suffering, they say, it's because you sinned, i.e. in what other Eastern religions would define as karma. Maybe I'm jumping to a conclusion too quickly. Maybe there are moments when you and I also experience bad things and we have an inkling of a thought that it may be due to such and such a thing that we did. Like when I was younger, I would say that the reason why I failed in that exam was probably God punish me, punishing me for skipping out on my piano practices or um, trying to fit in another hour of TV when I was young. Yet, we're not sure, right? We're not sure if our suffering was caused by our sin. And also, how do you define good and bad? How do you define suffering? How do you define good and bad people? 
Okay, that's a pretty tough question, right? So, what was Jesus' response to his disciples with this question? Well, to summarize, he says, it doesn't matter. I found the ESV translation as the closest to the original Greek text, and hence I'm using the ESV today. Basically, Jesus' answer was this. It doesn't matter, nor do you need to concern about these moral questions, because it's too big for you to understand. Sound familiar? For those of you who may have read Job, God said the same thing to Job when Job wondered why he was suffering. God says, it doesn't matter. It's too big for you to understand. However, we should see, Jesus says, however, Jesus says, we should see all these things, regardless whether it's suffering or not, all these things as an opportunity to participate in God's work, as Jesus sees these as opportunities to participate in God's work. Jesus says that everyone, including himself, are given a time to participate in God's work until they die. We only have a moment in this life on this planet. And so, Jesus says, take this very opportunity to participate in God's work. Take advantage of it. And so for Jesus, knowing his purpose as being the light of the world, he sees this as the opportunity to participate in God's work and and fulfill his role. He doesn't see this as an opportunity to spend his time on debating the cause of the suffering. Rather, he's telling us and you and I that rather than debating why there's suffering in the world, instead, just say this. Take Take advantage of this opportunity to be the light of the world. Let's go on. How about us then? When we see someone suffering, or when we encounter suffering, what goes on in our minds? Are we asking ourselves, what did I or they do to deserve the suffering? Was it poor choices? Was it horrible upbringing? Do we sometimes jump to the conclusion that the reason why this squeegee guy on the corner of Hastings and Maine, or the panhandler, the drug addict, the homeless person, the the reason why they are in this predicament was because of poor choices. You know, they decided to take arts instead of sciences or business, and they're just lazy. How should we respond when we encounter suffering or when we encounter someone else's suffering? Well, we respond the way Jesus responds, an opportunity for us to fulfill our purpose here on earth while we're still alive, to be a light of the world by loving them. This logic that the disciples had and then among the Jews was not out of love. This logic of suffering is caused by sin does one thing for certain. It makes someone bloated with self-righteousness and spiritual pride, i.e. what Jesus would call blindness. And we will encounter that shortly. Let's move on. Verse six, having said these things, Jesus spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Shalom, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. 
Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes open? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Shalom and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. Again, we're dealing with John here. So like the previous chapters, we need to see what John provides us as points to ponder. First, he put some effort in providing us with the meaning of Shalom, the name of the pool, which means scent. Then there's this idea of water and washing, which we've encountered before in the previous chapters. And of course, the whole theme of blindness to seeing, right? Okay, let's unpack a little. And I say a little because there's a lot of stuff to unpack. And if you have the resources and time, feel free to unpack some more in your own studies. But for now, I'll provide you with my highlights of my unpacking, i.e. just unpacking the undies. The only other place where the pool of Shalom was mentioned was found in Isaiah 8, 6, where God rebukes Israel for abandoning him. Here, I'll show it on the screen. Isaiah 8, 6. Because this people has refused the waters of Shalom, which is Shalom, that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remalia. When I read Isaiah, bleh, sorry, when I read Isaiah, there's this theme of great expectation that God will send his servant to save Israel from their exile and slavery. Yet, there's also a theme throughout Isaiah of the theme of warning that if Israel rejects God, and does not remain faithful and obedient to him, the servant will not show up. In, in fact, God will abandon them. The waters of Shiloh, i.e. the waters of the sent one, is a metaphor describing God's servant. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, predicted that Israel will experience severe calamity if they reject God's servant. Now, let's blast back to John. We've already read from the previous chapters how the Jews were rejecting Jesus, i.e. God sent one, right? Jesus already referred to himself as the sent one. And so John is telling you and I and his readers that we now need to keep Isaiah in mind going forward, i.e. we need to read the water and the washing, the blindness and the seeing in light of Isaiah because of the mentioning of Shalom. What does Isaiah say about washing then? Well, let's go into Isaiah chapter 1, verse 13. Bring no more vain offering. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly, the Lord says. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. See to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. This is what the Lord says to Isaiah, for Isaac, so that Isaiah could speak to Israel. All right. The Israelites in Isaiah were self-righteous hypocrites. 
they thought that doing the religious stuff would keep them as God's children while completely ignoring the sin in their lives. And so, God tells them, he doesn't want their religious stuff. He doesn't want the worship, the tithing, uh, the religious rituals. Uh, To modernize it, he doesn't want our church worship services anymore if we cannot address our own sin. In fact, he sees their worship and our worship, if we do not address our sin, as vile. Instead, he wants them to wash their sin, and the only way to do that is to repent and allow God to wash their sins. Keep that in mind, folks. Hypocrisy, self-righteous spiritual pride. God hates that. He wants obedience and repentance. All right, next up, blindness and seeing. Where do we see that in Isaiah? Well, here's one passage found in Isaiah 35, verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be open, and the ears of the deaf, deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. God promises that the blind will see, and the ears of the deaf will hear, and the lame will walk. I don't know why I keep on saying death instead of death. Now in John, we've already seen the lame walking in chapter 5 when Jesus healed a paralytic at the pool on Sabbath, right? And now we have Jesus healing a blind man at the pool on the Sabbath. Coincidence? No, it's just how John wanted to formulate these passages in a nice contained unit. So why does John want us to refer to Isaiah? Because he's telling us that Jesus is God and he is here to give life to the fullest to all who believe as promised in Isaiah. Jesus is not just the sent one from God anymore. He's also God himself. Isaiah's sent one throughout Isaiah does not do any healing. Only God does. Isaiah's sent one does not wash people's sins or provide mercy and grace. Only God does. So keep that in mind. Jesus is now saying that he is God himself. Not just the sent one, who he is, but also God himself in one. Verse 13 in chapter 9. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. We refer to that already. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I'm washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man, who who they are referring to as Jesus, is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs then? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about this Jesus, since he has opened your eyes? And the blind man, who used to be blind, said, he is a prophet. Just like the ex-blind man's friends and neighbors, the Pharisees also had the same idea. This is illogical. How can a blind man, whom they believe is a sinner because he's blind, can suddenly see? Only God can forgive a sinner and make people see, right? According to Isaiah. Also, how can Jesus do this when he's clearly a sinner according to our logic? He's a sinner because he broke Sabbath law. He's not allowed to make mud 
on Sabbath. He's not allowed to anoint eyes on Sabbath. And definitely, you're not allowed to heal someone on a Sabbath. Disobeying the Sabbath means you're a sinner. And if you're a sinner, God is not with you. And if God is not with you, how can you possibly heal? How is it possible that Jesus can heal if he's a sinner? The Pharisees were stumped due to their logic. So they interrogated the poor man and the man replied like every other person that we've encountered in the previous chapters. Whenever the Pharisees and the temple priests and the teachers of the law question a common Jew, what does the common Jew say? He's a prophet. The Pharisees were clearly judging this man. The phenomena of receiving his sight from Jesus didn't fit within their logic box. And because they made no room for curiosity and inquiry, they were stuck. They were stubborn and they were conflicted. You can say they were blind. Let's move on. Verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. Oh, brother, now they called the parents and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, or do we know who opened his eyes? Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. Now in parenthesis, his parents said these things because they, were, they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Verse 23, therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. The Jews were so stubborn, within their logic, that they even brought in the guy's parents. Remember what I mentioned about logic? Just like Lucy's siblings who use their logic to condescend and exert their power over Lucy, the Jews used their logic to condescend and exert their power over the common people. And not only that, they kick them out of the community if they don't follow and live within their logic box. So, Toe the party line or get out. Now, for some of us, that doesn't really mean much now these days of getting kicked out of the community. But back then, getting kicked out of the community was a huge deal because it was a matter of life or death. You can't get loans, you can't get finances, you cannot get a job, you can't get food if you get kicked out of the community. And so we can see why the common Jews didn't want to speak against these Pharisees, these temple priests, and these teachers of the law, because it's a life or death situation if you do that. So let's move on. Verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God, i.e. tell the truth. We know that this man is a sinner. It's like, okay, you just, you asked the guy to tell the truth. You tell the guy to tell the truth, yet you just blurted it out. All right. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Uh, now, that's a famous line, right? In one particular, very famous hymn. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Ooh, snap. 
And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. This is very similar to the beginning of this chapter, right? The disciples, when they asked Jesus the question of who sinned, it was already in their minds that the blind man and or the parents are sinners. Or in fact, to them, all the whole, the whole shlemiel are sinners. They just don't know which one, right? And Jesus answered that it didn't matter for it wasn't their concern. All suffering is an opportunity to participate in God's work. Here, we have a similar response from the healed blind man. The Pharisees say this man is a sinner and they're debating about it while the blind man responds, who cares? All I know is that I was blind, now I see. The work that only God can do was done on me, the blind man says. And interestingly, the Jews claim they are disciples of Moses. Now, that should just blast us back to Isaiah. Now, the Jews claim they are disciples of Moses because they are doing all the rituals and religious stuff the law of Moses requires, right? That's why, that's how they think that being a disciple of Moses is. That's how they define as being a disciple of Moses. Just do the religious stuff and the rituals. Don't address my sin though. Yet, if they only knew that that does not qualify you as being a disciple. If only they remember that Moses himself also warned them that they need to address their sin or else they'll be disqualified. Their logic blinded them of the reality of their sin. Their logic so blinded them that they completely missed the point where Moses actually predicted that there will be a witness to accuse Israel of their sin because they thought they were sinless due to their ritual keeping. Now, for those of you who are wondering where is that in the, in the Old Testament, just go back to Deuteronomy when they put the law in the Ark of the Covenant. All right, let's go on. Verse 30, the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of, man, of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. This is what the blind man said. This is a common Jew. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? They cast him out. Oh, snap. Now the healed blind man responds using their logic against them. We can see clearly now how the Jews use their logic, right? They use their logic to condescend and exert their power over people. They used it to maintain their elite status and self-righteous pride. And because they're now threatened by one person that was once blind but now healed, instead of curiosity, instead of inquiry, instead of just maybe, just maybe, some space for some wonder and excitement to see God's work in front of them, what do they do? They toss the man out of the community and left him to die. Sounds familiar in one of the Isaiah passages? Let's move on. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, I have no clue what you're talking about. Who is he, sir? Then I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. 
He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world for those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Isaiah and Moses. Recall those passages? Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, in other words, you say that you know it all, your guilt remains. Again, not enough time to unpack John's rich use of words here. We're not going to unpack Son of Man, but I recommend that you read Daniel and the commentaries on Daniel on the term Son of Man. Lots of ink has been poured onto this term. Right now, I just want to focus on how this man had no clue who the Son of Man was, i.e. he has no theological training, no regent college degrees, no carry or uh, what's the other one, Trinity Western or anything, no Fuller Seminary. He has no clue. He's just a common Jew. He's a common person just like you and I, all right? He has no theological training and has no logic boxes to box Jesus in. So all he knew was that he was healed by Jesus. And so he concludes that, hey, if you're saying that uh, the definition of Son of Man is the guy who heals me, sure then, Jesus, you are the Son of Man. The one who heals me and therefore is God himself, Lord. The blind man had space for wonder, he had space for inquiry, and he had space for God to work. Whereas the Jews made no room. They were so stubborn in their logic, they were so prideful in what that they think that they know it all, and they were so self-righteous that they had so much knowledge and theological training, they kept all the rituals and religious stuff, they claimed to see. However, because of all that, they were unwilling to address their own sin. And Jesus says to them, that's why you're blind. It's because your guilt remains. Whereas those who believe in Jesus, their guilt will be washed away. Because believing means actually repenting of your sin and allowing Jesus to work. How about us? Do we have logic boxes as well? When we see people in suffering, are we quick to judge and try to point out their sin? Do our logic boxes condescend people and prop ourselves up as moral upright citizens, looking down at poor saps who aren't like us? If so, if we do have these boxes, we're blind. Blind by the immense grace, blind on not knowing the immense grace and mercy that God has for all of humanity through Jesus. We're blind to the fact that God sent Jesus to die for us so that we can be forgiven. We're blind to the fact that he died for our sins so that our sins can be washed away and have access to eternal life with him. We're blind to the fact that anyone who believes, regardless of how well they keep their rituals, they are as equal as us. If we have these logic boxes, if we continue to try to make connections between suffering and sin for the sake of con condescending others and make ourselves self-righteous and try to prop our pride and Bible study reading and Bible knowledge and thinking that we're so ooh, morally uh, superior than other people and et cetera, et cetera, then we're blind and we need to repent. Amen.